Grace and peace to you from the King of glory. Brothers and sisters in Christ, on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode in on a donkey to Jerusalem, and they laid out the proverbial red carpet by spreading out their cloaks, and those who didn't have cloaks laid out palm branches for him. And yet on Good Friday, he comes out of Jerusalem, and there's no red carpet. Rather, his back is red with blood because he's been scourged. And they know that that scourging either had lead in it or they would pound into the leather thongs uh, broken pieces of pottery so that they have accounts where it literally ripped people's back open that you could actually see their ribs. And he's not riding on a donkey anymore. Rather, riding on his shoulders is a cross and he'll be attached to it very shortly. Brothers and sisters in Christ, throughout this Lent season, we've discussed the theme, Confessions Proclaimed by Christ's Enemies, during our midweek services. And let's admit it, most of those confessions have been by the Sanhedrin that was supposed to point to Him as the Savior. Only once so far have we had a confession proclaimed by a Gentile, and that was the confession proclaimed by Pilate's wife, have nothing to do with that righteous man. Today we have another confession proclaimed by the Gentiles, and this by the soldiers who mockingly have a good time with him, by mocking him. Our text for our sermon is John chapter 19, verse 1, and Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 30. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole cohort of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, knelt in front of him and mocked him by saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him, took the staff and hit him repeatedly on his head. This is the gospel history of our Lord. Pilate was quite the politician, brothers and sisters in Christ. He recognizes he's about to have a riot on his hands. He has admitted that he finds no basis for a charge against Jesus. And so, in quite a political plan, he has Jesus flogged. But, the Jews are saying he's claiming to be the king of the Jews, and so he wants to make them see that there's nothing about this kingship that they need to be in such a fuss about. Of course, he's wrong. You and I know that. So he has, there's a cohort of soldiers, 600. We'd say he probably has the ones who are stationed to post stay at their post. But he gets that cohort to come in. And we know this is at the Praetorium. He's there at the Praetorium. So we can guess, we can logically deduce that he's actually behind this and tells them, Make a mockery of this man so that they can see that there's nothing, no reason to kill him. And boy, do those soldiers have their fun. Like a a cohort was about 600 soldiers. Probably not all of them are there. But the other intelligent thing about how he does this is, if you're afraid of having a riot, now he's found a way to get the soldiers in there to at least protect him and the Roman property. And it's while those soldiers are having their good time mocking Jesus that they say that confession, Hail, King of the Jews. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the truth of the matter is, Jesus is the King of the Jews. 
Zechariah had prophesied 500 years earlier that he would come in just as he did, not just riding on a donkey, but on the colt of a donkey. And that confession, hail king of the Jews, they should have recognized by the fact that he allows himself to be mocked, by the fact that what kind of an animal does he come in on? Not a war horse, not the horse that the Romans would have used to draw their chariots or in their cavalry. That's what you would expect out of a king coming to the capital city of a political kingdom. He doesn't come in just on a donkey, which is an animal that's not suited for war. It doesn't have the right personality, the right temperament. But he comes in on something even more ridiculous than that. On an unbroke donkey. On an animal that had never been ridden. On a colt. This should have told them that he is a different kind of king. In fact, they knew the prophecy recorded by Zechariah and they should have paid attention to it. The battle bowl will be taken away and he will proclaim peace to the nations. Should have been a hint to them that this was not a king who'd come to wage political warfare. Oh, but if they knew Isaiah who had prophesied 700 years before the birth of Christ, they would have had an even stronger hint. When they go through the names of Jesus, he's a wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace. The animal Jesus rides in on and the scourging, the mocking he allows of himself should have told them he's a different kind of king. In fact, we're told in the Passion history, they began to accuse him of many things, saying, we found this fellow misleading our nation, forbidding the payment of taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Jesus never forbid paying taxes to Caesar. He said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God. So they're lying there. But he is Christ the king. Christ is the Greek word for anointed. He was the one God anointed. The Hebrew word is, is Messiah in English. He's the one God anointed to be king. Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and he's our king. But he's a different kind of king. Not a king of a political, geographical nation, the king of all creation. And if you need proof of that, listen to Jesus' response to Pilate in the Passion history. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. Jesus answered, I am, as you say, a king. For this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Stronger words than this you do not need to make it abundantly clear that while the Old Testament prophesied a descendant of David would come as king, but that he is a different king. He's not the king of a political nation with geographical borders. And it's sad that many Christians today still refuse to hear those words, that his is a different kind of kingdom, and they look for a millennial return of Christ in which the capital city of Jerusalem will be part of a geographical nation in which Jesus rules as king. He's a king of a different kind of kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world because it's his rule in your and my hearts and the hearts of everyone who believes. We call it the invisible Christian church. And it's made up of all those who trust in Jesus for their salvation. 
Beginning when God restored faith to Adam and Eve and gave them something to trust in, the coming Savior who would crush the serpent's head. This king comes in and allows himself to be manhandled because he's going to die for your and my sins and rise victorious over the devil, over sin, and over our sins so that he can rule in your heart and put you in his true kingdom, the invisible church, which will be made visible when he returns on judgment day. But the way he wins you and I is through suffering. The suffering of the cross. And before he goes to that cross, he allows these Gentiles to mock him. They make that crown of thorns and put it on his head. They take a a Roman soldier's faded cloak that wasn't actually the true purple and they throw that over him, a tattered thing, and it's actually a stalk of reed that they put in his hand like a ruler's staff. Oh, what a mock-looking king. But brothers and sisters in Christ, this was to say something. He's a different kind of king, and he's come to win us through his suffering as seen by that crown of thorns. Riding in on the colt of a donkey was a sign for the Jews who had the scriptures. But allowing himself to be mocked this way and to be manhandled the way he was, that's for the Gentiles to tell them, I am a king. But I'm a different kind of king. I'm a thorn-crowned king. I win you through suffering. Why does he need to have this crown for the Gentiles? Well, for the Jews, when somebody became a king or was put into an office like high priest, they were anointed as the Old Testament had established. But what makes you a king to Gentiles? They put a crown on your head. A coronation ceremony. Now you're king. At this time in history, the Caesars, the emperors, if you will, of the Roman Empire, they would wear a crown made out of celery stalks. So here too, even in this mocking, this mock crown is right. He is a king wearing his crown. But it's a, it, it's, it's a message. I'm a thorn-crowned king. I'm here to win you into my kingdom through suffering. Now it's interesting that they use thorns, besides the fact that that hurts It's going to cut into the skin. See, I often think when I read the creation account and the fall into sin, what does God tell Adam? Because you listened, you are cursed, and by by the sweat of your brow, you will now pull forth your living out of the ground. This is when we get thorns. This is when we get weeds. God subjected this world to decay because Adam and Eve believed the devil's lie. That crown of thorns is a strong reminder of the fall into sin because thorns would not exist and would not hurt. They wouldn't create problems for our gardens and our crops if Adam and Eve had never fallen into sin. That crown reminds us that because of the devil's lie, this world was cursed. And it was cursed so that we would not get attached to it because God has a better world in mind for you. And Christ wears that crown of thorns reminding us he's going to the cross so that he can give you the new heavens and the new earth and the glorified body that comes when he returns. Now, when Jesus began his ministry, God made it clear that he was the Messiah, which means anointed one, or Christ from the Greek, by at Jesus' baptism. And that's when he begins his public ministry. But you could say, with the Gentile soldiers cruelly, mockingly putting this crown of thorns on his head, he is being coronated into something else. During his roughly 33 years of life, Jesus, who is true God, who became true man, 
does not use all the powers of his godhood, nor does he let that glory be seen. But brothers and sisters in Christ, on Good Friday, this crown is put upon his head, probably the thorns digging and cutting into the skin. He'll be dead and placed in the tomb on Good Friday. So one day in the tomb, Saturday, all day, he'll be in the tomb. Sunday, the third day, he'll be in the tomb early in the morning, but he'll come out of it and he is in his state of exaltation. Suddenly, Christ is no longer holding back his godly powers and he apparates into the room, if you will, when the disciples have the doors locked, being coronated to finish up his state of humiliation and take on his state of exaltation where he will rule, having now paid for your sins on the cross he will, to, so that he can put you in his kingdom, he will rule to bring you into his invisible kingdom and he will rule over all time in history to keep you in that kingdom so that you can receive the end result of that kingdom when it's made visible when he gives you your glorified body in the new heavens and the new earth. Hail, King of the Jews, is a confession proclaimed by Christ's enemies, but they should have seen he's a different kind of king. He's a king who's come to win you into his true kingdom, the invisible church, and he's a thorn-crowned king. He comes to win you through his victory that comes through suffering the punishment for our sins, suffering at the hands of sinners so that he can win them. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, as these soldiers mock him, what do they do? They get to spit on him. They get to hit him. They take that, that reed that they were using as a mock staff and they smack him over the head with it. And if he's wearing a crown of thorns, guess what it's going to do to that crown? Deeper those thorns are going to go. This hurts. What kind of a king would allow that? What kind of a god would allow that? Brothers and sisters in Christ, even in the medieval ages, you didn't just walk up to a king. We can forget that in America where we have a representative government that we elect. We see nobody's above us, nobody's superior to us. We've tried to set up a government where we can say we're all equals. But it used to be you didn't approach a king without his permission. In fact, if you read the book of Esther, she was the king's wife. And even she had to stay back at a distance and wait for permission to talk to him. And most gods, you had to make sacrifices. You had to get on their good side. Well, you had to be careful not to get on their bad side. But... The true God takes on human flesh and doesn't just allow these Roman soldiers or the Sanhedrin who also had him beat. That he doesn't just allow them to smack him and spit on him and stand in his presence. He even allows them to whip him, exposing, as I said, potentially his ribs. Now, that's cruel and mean, but what I'm trying to point out here is, as he said to the disciples, he could have called on a legion of angels, Wham! You don't touch me. You don't come near me. Even when he called Moses to lead the people, he said, take your sandals off for you're standing on holy ground. But he had, to make, he had to let Moses know it's okay to approach him. When he calls Isaiah to be prophet, Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm a sinful man. And he sends that angel to, to grab a piece of coal out of the altar and touch his lips to make him clean. It's okay, Isaiah. What I'm getting at is, Jesus is not only a king you can approach, he wants you to be able to approach Him. Because in our natural condition, we cannot approach Him. He is holy and our sin will destroy us. This is why He had to hide the glory of His Godhood so that He could hang out with
knoweth the sinners. Now, he never fell into sin. He was righteous in our place. If he'd have let an ounce of the glory of his Godhood shine through, those soldiers would have died. Those at a distance would have ran in fear, if you will. But he allows himself to be approached. He allows himself to be manhandled so that he can remove your sins because he wants you to approach him. And how do you approach him? First, he has sent somebody to you, one of his messengers, and he's let you be a messenger to somebody else to tell them, you're unholy, but God has come. He made you holy. By faith, his blood becomes yours and you are holy. Then you can approach him. You come to his word and you can hear him talking to you whether it be a Sunday school teacher or even a child singing Hail Hosanna, God is using them as His mouthpiece to tell you He's your Savior. He's talking to you. You're able to approach Him. And He tells you the best news of all, that He's removed your sin. And you're able to approach Him. What are the things bothering you in this life? What things are stressing you out? Which neighbor, which family member is rejecting the Lord that you're concerned about? you can approach Him in prayer. And He doesn't just promise to hear your prayer. He promises to answer them according to what He, who is King who rules over all creation, knows is best. So the last thing I want to say, the confession, not just hell, King of the Jews, but the fact that Jesus even allows them to touch Him is a, is a word of comfort for you and I that He's a King we can approach. He's our brother. And when He sent the Holy Spirit into your heart so that you have that new man, He literally connected you to Him. So that as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're parts of the body and He's the head. You don't just approach Him. Your new man is attached to Him. Praise God. So this confession proclaimed by His enemies, Hail, King of the Jews, they missed it. But it's a confession that he's a different kind of king. He has that invisible kingdom and he's ruling to put you in it and keep you in it. That invisible kingdom is the church of all Christians, of all people who believe in him. He's a thorn-crowned king because he wins you into his kingdom through a tremendous victory, a victory that came through suffering, a victory over the devil who accuses you, a victory over death so that you have eternal life, and a victory over your sins because he took the punishment for you and washed your sins away with his blood. And and that makes him a king you can approach. You're united to him forever. Amen. Hosanna in the highest, that ancient song we sing. For Christ is our Redeemer, the Lord of heaven, our King. Oh, may we ever praise him with heart and life and voice, and in his royal presence eternally rejoice. Amen.